I'm Dan Rundy. I hold the Schreier Chair here at CSIS. This is another edition of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm here with Ken Wallach, who's the president of the National Democratic Institute, better known as NDI. Ken, thanks for being here. Thank you, Dan. So, Ken, what is NDI? What's the National Endowment for Democracy? When someone says that, what, what, what should they think? Well, in 1982, President Reagan delivered a sort of a landmark speech to the British Parliament. And he talked about, and this was during the Cold War, obviously, uh, the threat of, of Soviet communism around the world. And he said that the world's democracies were not as good as explaining its virtues as was the Soviet Union. And he called for sort of a community of democracies and a commitment on the part of the United States and other democracies to help each other and to support democracies and democratic institutions. Now, it had its origins before. It had origins in the Marshall Plan and in the Atlantic Charter, President uh, Carter's human rights policies, the Ford administration's commitment to the to the uh, the OS, the predecessor to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, uh, the CSCE process, which had a huge impact in terms of highlighting the, the, the human, human rights, rights. And, and political rights issues in the Soviet Union at the time. But this was something that was much bigger. And the result of, of that speech was a year-long study uh, which led to the creation of uh, the National Endowment for Democracy. It was an organization that would be operating with government funds, but would be private. And this was purposeful because it didn't want to be caught up into the day-to-day -day, uh, public diplomacy, the day-to-day -day bilateral relationships, but an organization uh, utilizing government funds to support democratic institutions, processes, and movements around the world. And there would be the endowment itself and then four institutions, each related to uh, uh, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, labor, and business, institutes that would work overseas with their counterparts, uh, because these were institutions important to our democracy, and certainly that there were international relationships be between many of these, these organizations around the world. And so the endowment was established with broad bipartisan support in 1983, and it was a time when the situation in the world looked rather bleak. Latin American countries were dominated by military regimes. Uh, the countries of Bangladesh, Pakistan, Korea were, were led by military dictatorships and Burma. You had martial law in Taiwan. You had an absolute monarchy in Nepal. In Africa, you had only four African heads of state that stepped down voluntarily between 1960 and 1983. Um, uh, the Middle East was dominated, except for Israel, by, uh, by non-democratic forces. So the world was rather sparse when it came to the governments. And of course, you had uh, the Soviet Union, whose occupation extended to Western, the borders of Western Europe. So it was a very difficult and challenging time, and sometimes we forget how difficult it was when we look at the problems that exist today. Ken, talk about how did you end up working at NDI? What, how did that happen? Well, it was I came to NDI about uh, two years after it was established. Uh, a very close friend of mine, Brian Atwood, who went on to become the administrator of USAID, was the first president of NDI, and I, I knew Brian very well, and he recruited me to be, to be the vice president of the organization. And then when he left 
to become USAID administrator, I took over as president. It was a time when Walter Mondale was chairman of NDI, uh, Madeleine Albright, who is our current chairman since uh, she left the State Department in 2001, was the founding vice chair of NDI in 1983. And they established a foundation for the organization based on, I think, integrity, a multinational approach to this work. This was not to be an American export model, uh, that we would work with democratic forces across the political spectrum. I've been very privileged to both succeed Brian as president and also to be able to serve under under people like uh, Fritz Mondale and Madeleine Albright. Yeah, I have to say, I've, I've gotten to know uh, Secretary Albright a little bit, and um, she is just a wonderful person, and she's been so steady and so visionary on these issues. And if I word associate with Secretary Albright, I word associate the word bipartisan. I word associate with working with our friends and allies around the world. And I know that's something that you've also done at NDI. Ken, can you talk about, are there other governments that do this kind of work? The United States is not the only government that does this sort of work. There is a misconception because critics of uh, democracy work sort of describe it as an American export product, that somehow we go around the world preaching the American political system and trying to impose uh, democracies in country. And as Madeleine Albright always says, imposition of democracy is an oxymoron. Uh, democracy is about choice, not imposition. Secondly, there were organizations that were doing this work uh, long before we entered the field, um, primarily led by the German political party foundations, uh, that after the war they established foundations, each associated with the six political parties of Germany, uh, receive uh, extraordinary amounts of funding from the German government, not only to strengthen political parties in Germany, but also to support counterpart parties around the world. And they played an important role in the 1970s in helping to steer Spain and Portugal from dictatorship to democracy. And since um, our establishment in the early 1980s, there is truly today an international architecture on this issue. You have other governments um, that support this work, from the British to the Dutch to the Canadians to the Swiss to the, uh, uh, to the Norwegians to the Swedes, um, all understanding that economic and political development go hand in hand. The Swedish development policy, by the way, basically stipulates that you can define poverty not only in social economic terms but also in political terms. Um, and now there are intergovernmental organizations that are dedicated to, to democracy and human rights as well, including the Organization of American States, the African Union. Um, you have the United Nations Development Program uh, that dedicates a substantial portion of its budget uh, to uh, this type of work. Uh, you have the OSCE in Europe and Eurasia uh, that is uh, uh, – it's based on democratic principles. Um, and you have other non-governmental organizations around the world, some operating on government funds as we do, uh, but operating also uh, privately that support this work too. So now this, the, the lexicon of democracy you know, is a big part of international relations and the architecture for uh, democratic support is is fairly wide and deep today. This is a new phenomenon. Se Secretary Albright it, it talks about the 40s, defense, diplomacy, development, and democracy. And something that she coined, and I think NDI and you have helped popularize this concept of delivering on democracy. 
What does delivering on democracy mean and why is it important? Well, I, I think we learned something early on um, when there was this wave of democratization in some hundred countries during the 1980s and 1990s moved more closely into a democratic camp, what some people would call electoral democracies, in which people were able to choose their leaders in sort of open democratic elections. But we found, perhaps not surprisingly, that many of these new democratic governments dedicated to reform uh, were hampered by the, the problems of their non-democratic predecessors, plagued by poverty and disease and citizen apathy and corruption. And the expectations of the citizens in these countries uh, were that democratic, new democratic forms of government would be more responsive to citizen concerns. And it would respond to issues that they care uh, deeply about, jobs and education and housing and health. We discovered a couple things. Uh, the first is that many people who were democratic, when they entered government, they became less democratic. And secondly, that government did not deliver on the expectations, the, the economic expectations of their citizens. And there was a gap between the rich and the poor. Government seemed to be unresponsive. Uh, political institutions seemed out of touch and uh, corrupt. And um, as a result of that, two things happen. People go to the streets to protest, um, and that is not the place where public policy issues should be addressed. Or they vote for a populist leader like Hugo Chavez, who promises a people's democracy, cut out the middleman, cut out the political institutions, I'll represent you directly. And we all know what a people's democracy ends up as. And Hugo Chavez once said famously that he's not the cause, he's the result. He really is the result of failed political institutions in a country that had been a vibrant democracy and had been an exporter of democracy in the hemisphere. It was really the teachers of democracy in the hemisphere. So we spend much more of our time at NDI, and others do, uh, not on advocating democratic elections, as important as they are, but dealing on governance issues of trying to promote a citizen-centric government, so political parties and parliaments and governments and citizens uh, engage with one another so citizens have a higher degree of confidence um, in the political institutions that are supposed to represent them. And so those economic issues are seen to be that they deal with, that citizens have an input into the policy decisions that those institutions uh, are engaged in. Ken, talk about the, there was a period, it seems, from about 1986 until about 2004 where there, you could, you could kind of, this is my simplistic thinking about it, there's from 1986 to 2004, there was a certain period of time of how the business was. And then from 2004 onwards, it's been a lot rockier. Talk about the first period and the, now the second period. Well, I think the first period, and this was really began, uh, I think, in, in, as I said, it was Spain and Portugal in the 1970s, okay. and then the Philippines and Chile um, in the, the 1980s, and then the fall of the wall, and the impact that that had globally. Uh, had an impact throughout the world, including on the African continent, uh, where you had national conferences, more open political systems, the, the near end of one-party rule, the introduction of multi-party democracy. Um, so those, so there were huge changes that came rather quickly. And, and then you had um, 
you had, I think, two phenomena. One was that the failure of new political systems to deliver on the expectations of their citizens, and uh, therefore you had uh, political upheaval. Uh, you had uh, military intervention, coups in places like uh, Pakistan, uh, Cote d'Ivoire, and sometimes these coups were popular because citizens turned to extraordinary means to address their grievances. The popularity of these coups were short-lived, but that was the first phenomenon was sort of the failure of these institutions to deliver on, on the promise of democracy. And the second was that autocrats that remained in power began to fear their own citizens, fear democratic uprisings in their countries. And so they began to clamp down on reform, on liberalization. And so they began passing laws to restrict independent activity, let alone opposition activity. Uh, break, linkage, break linkages between these groups and the international community. These autocrats around the world began to communicate with each other and to learn from each other. And so you've had a situation with sort of the weaknesses of new democracies and the efforts of autocrats to remain in power, refusing to diffuse political power. Um, and these two, I think, phenomena have reinforced each other. And today you have certain... Uh, powers in the name of, of Russia and China that are not only trying to maintain their control inside their country, but to some degree propagate sort of this authoritarian model uh, beyond their borders. Uh, because they believe that the more you can break up alliances based on values, that they will benefit. So they use a lot of means. They use money, aid, and disinformation, propaganda in order to um, not so much to sell their model, but to undermine uh, democratic discourse, democratic governance, and to undermine confidence that people would have in democracies. How do we push back against this autocratic model that's being exported? I think we all have to wake up, and to, first of all, and to understand what a threat this is. And it is a serious threat. And it's a threat not based on missiles and aircraft carriers and bombs. It doesn't take a lot of money for Russia and China to invest in this type of effort. And so I think we have to understand how great this threat is, how much it's permeated the international order. And um, we have to begin what I would call a, a democracy stimulus. We have to begin being much more engaged internationally as we were in the Cold War. We have to join other like-minded countries. There, an international architecture exists for this, intergovernmental organizations, non-governmental organizations, governments, even international financial institutions, and now understand the linkages between economic progress and more open political systems. So we have to, um, it really requires a call of action that requires financial resources, but leadership on this issue that is able to uh, detect uh, these problems, expose it, and counter it. And uh, this is just beginning now, but it needs, it, as I said, it needs much greater effort. And I think ultimately we can, we can confront this uh, challenge, um, but, um, but we've been caught by surprise. This is sort of like the Sputnik, uh, Sputnik, uh, Sputnik moment. moment. Well, I, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, Ken, that we you know, as I said to you earlier, we had this public event, uh, an exit interview for you, that you're you're transitioning to a new 
new life post NDI. It seems to me this is a topic that's worthy of, of people of goodwill's efforts to, to create a strategy and to push back on this. And so perhaps this is something we should, we should talk about offline, but I think this is something that is going to require a, a multi-year effort over a long period of time, and we're going to have to bring people together in this country, and then we're going to have to bring new technology partners together, as well as working with our friends and allies and working through the institutions that you're talking about. I agree with you. We're going to need a democracy stimulus to push back against this, and I think so maybe there's some things we can be doing together here Absolutely. on that. Absolutely. That is, it's really important. One thing that yeah. we have learned, too, is that democratic progress is inseparable from democratic cooperation. So this requires a, a whole movement uh, all new alliances and old alliances coming together around these around these issues. The what what would you say when the Russians say, "Well, this this Ned stuff, this NDI work, this IRI work," you know, when people criticize what Russia is doing, we're doing the same thing. What's your reaction to that statement? Well, I I, I was quoted uh, a couple weeks ago by saying this is not apples and oranges. It's uh, the difference between somebody administering life-saving medicine um, to somebody administering poison. Um, when, um, when we and other organizations, intergovernmental organizations, uh, other governments, non-governmental groups engage in elections overseas, um, the whole effort is designed to promote the integrity of the elections, is to, to support a process that reflects the will of the people, to help people participate uh, actively in the process, to enhance confidence in the process. Because in many cases, these elections are not elections. They're elections in name only. Uh, these are elections where opposition candidates are— They're farces. Uh, uh, they're, they're farces. They're predetermined elections. Vast majorities of the people do not believe that the elections reflect or reflect the, the will of the people. Um, and so what the international community has done in these situations is trying to enhance the integrity and, uh, and, uh, uh, of, the, of the process. And we do it in a transparent way. We respond to requests from, uh, from organizations and groups in these countries. Um, we, we're not seeking a particular outcome. Um, we operate, as I said, uh, very openly. And the Russians are, are engaged in this work. Their intent is very different. Their intent is to take a democratic election and trying to subvert it uh, through cyber espionage, uh, spreading falsehoods, uh, 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 false identities. So what they're undermining democratic discourse, spreading rumors, seeking particular outcomes. Um, so it's exactly the opposite of what engagement is. Now, some people would try to create a moral equivalency between these two. But don't forget, Russia is obligated to conduct open democratic elections as a member of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. This is an organization of some 54 countries um, dedicated to certain democratic principles of which demo open democratic elections is one. And so therefore, these are not uh, these are not principles. These are principles that are international and regional and principles that the Russians are, are supposedly committed to. And so what we do and others do is to hold them 
to the commitments that they have made. Could you talk about the prospects for democracy in Russia? You told a really interesting story out, outside about the pianist in Kazakhstan. No, in, in many of these places where the situation looks bleak and no one can determine when there will be a democratic breakthrough in these places, that there are very courageous Democrats um, that are, are struggling to open political space, to participate in the process. Um, they participate in elections not to win, but they participate in elections to learn. Um, and, um, and one Russian dissident, uh, one Russian Democrat tells the story about a very famous pianist <coughs> who, uh, uh, of Georgian ancestry who um, was exiled in 1948 by Joseph Stalin to Kazakhstan and couldn't take his piano with him. He couldn't perform, and for 13 years he was unable to play the piano. But what he did was he took a, a plank, a wooden plank, and for 13 years he practiced on a wooden plank. And when Khrushchev in, uh, invited him back to Moscow 13 years later in the mid-1950s, uh, he performed, became won every prestigious uh, award, musical award in the Soviet Union. And this Russian Democrat, small d Democrat, said that, um, referring to Rudolf Kerr, the pianist, said that uh, we're playing on our wooden plank right now. And uh, we are under difficult circumstances. We're practicing democracy. We're practicing to promote and, uh, our fundamental political and human rights. And someday we'll be able to play on our piano. Someday we'll be able to uh, to, to live in a democratic Russia. Talk about a couple of other places that are tricky, you know, harder, difficult, challenging places. So I think about um, China. There's been some news in the last 48 hours about there's been some changes. So talk a little bit about China and reflect a little bit about the potential for democracy well, in China. As I said at the earlier event that you hosted, Dan, I, I'm not a China expert. And people refer to the economic successes of China over the recent decades and the, the idea that 400 million people have been brought out of poverty. But I'd rather look not at snapshots, I'd rather look at trends. There have been interesting papers and books written on this subject. The most recent I called the Why Nations Fail. And um, it's, it was interesting to read about, uh, about the Chinese model. And the current system sort of masks the millions of Chinese who died during the period of the Great Leap Forward or the Cultural Revolution. And the problem that the authors wrote about is uh, with all authoritarian governments. They seem stable until they're unstable. And that when they do make mistakes, because they irrigate all power to themselves. Uh, they don't benefit from different voices and different opinions. When they fail, they can't avoid the spectacular disasters that as a result of those, of those wrong decisions. Including things like famines. And famines are a result. Exactly. They're, they're only held in authoritarian uh, regimes. Right. The famines only happen exactly. in authoritarian regimes. And so what you have right now is a, is a authoritarian system. It's become that much more authoritarian, which with the recent decision to lift the term limit of President Xi. And uh, you have incidences of large-scale corruption in the country. And so I think that ultimately, as I said, this system is stable until... Until it's not. I, I think of Natan Sharansky's book, The Case for Democracy, and uh, that book gave me a lot of hope. And uh, he, I, I brought him, when I was in the Bush administration, mm -hmm. I had him speak at, at USAID. He had been in the Oval Office with President Bush. This was a book that 
greatly influenced President Bush. So this is your point about there's, they seem stable until they're not. That's one of Natan Sharansky's point. Isn't yeah. It? And, and by the way, uh, Mr. Sharansky and I serve on the same board of advisors to the Bush Institute oh, wow. uh, in Dallas, in which President Bush is, is head in, and to support the Institute's efforts on democracy and human Natan rights. Natan Sharansky is an ama- amazing yeah. person. It yeah. was uh, one of the great privileges of my career to meet Natan Sharansky. Yeah. I really admire him and uh, look up to him. I wanted to ask about the Arab world, and I wanted you to talk a little bit about the Arab Spring and the what's happened since, and could you just spend one minute on the country of Tunisia? As a yeah. Well, I think what, what happened, I mean, they, they, it's not monolithic. I mean, it, it, there isn't one story of the Arab Spring. There are many stories of the Arab Spring, but I think, I, I think what happened... Uh, a number of things happened, and there were a number of uh, phenomena. But one was that that those who went to the streets and protested for their for dignity um, underestimated the deep state, and this was the elite in the country, the military in the country, people who had benefited from dictatorship for many many years underestimated their power, and they were unprepared for the pushback from these uh, non-democratic forces. And in many cases, many of the people who went to the streets uh, did not go from protest to politics. Um, they considered politics dirty, and they stayed away. And, um, and uh, something the Ukrainians, I think, learned for after the revolution of dignity uh, on the Maidan Square in, in 2014. Ukraine in 2014, in which many of those protesters entered politics, started political parties, and are um, key to the reform movement that exists in Ukraine today. And I think that was a missed opportunity. Uh, But there was a tremendous pushback by non-democratic forces. Um, And so so the regimes uh, responded with sort of great brutality. And this was certainly the case in in Egypt and and Syria and Yemen. But in other places, handled the situation quite differently. And, And there are places like Tunisia that did not have a history of military intervention in politics, had enlightened leadership that included... Uh, the Islamist-based political party, uh, Anada, uh, who stepped down voluntarily, and other leaders who did not have a winner-take-all mentality. They agreed to coalition governments. Um, you had a civil society led by the labor movement that forced the parties to come to the table to negotiate through a national a dialogue on these issues to develop a constitution and then open democratic elections. And there are serious, serious challenges that, that still exist in the country. You, you have the young people, the youth in the country that still feel disaffected, but they handled the Arab Spring quite differently after, uh, after the departure of Ben Ali. Um, and then the other, some other countries like Morocco and Jordan, Lebanon, who uh, I would describe as liberalizing, if not reforming countries, are better able to handle issues like extremist uh, extremism, better able to handle economic issues, and provide an avenue for citizen engagement um, in, in the politics of the country. And these are the places, even under the, the most challenging environments, particularly in Jordan, where you have one quarter of the population that are refugees, one quarter is refugees in the country, that they're better able to handle this situation than you have autocratic regimes and one party, one man rule. 
Tell me about you opened a um, an office in Silicon Valley. Why did you do that? Well, because um, because I think you have in many countries you have citizens that. Uh, are utilizing technology to improve uh, government services. You using uh, you have citizens using technology to make demands on their government. And there are companies in Silicon Valley, both the large tech companies as well as new startup companies, that have technological solutions to problems that exist. Now, technology does, is a tool. It doesn't solve problems. It's a tool to help solve problems. Um, and um, we have developed, I think, good relationships with these technology companies um, uh, to help citizens uh, communicate to, to government and, even more important, to help government and political institutions respond to a tech-savvy citizenry. Uh, because if the political institutions withdraw, they don't utilize this type of technology to, uh, to deliver on democracy and don't use technology to communicate with those engaged in, in the politics of the country, uh, then you're going to see a further crisis of confidence, a, a further a division between the citizens and their, and their government. So technology has become an important part for communication. And, and an important part to help solve problems at the local level as well as the national level as a tool. And now technology has become extremely important as a means to uh, detect, expose, and counter disinformation mm. um, that is being used uh, by technology platforms, uh, in technology platforms. So how do, you, how do you get technology companies to respond to this disinformation and propaganda efforts by non-democratic forces that are trying to undermine democratic d discourse. So how do you help tech companies, uh, what we call design for democracy? It's, it was very interesting when we were talking outside about the, the fact that technology companies partnering with these civil society groups or these, these, you know, these networks that institutions like NDI have helped support, build, and grow over time that there's a symbiotic and fruitful relationship between the two. For example, there are today, as I talked about this international democracy architecture, there are today uh, over 200, closer to, to 300, citizen monitoring organizations. Mm. They monitor the work of parliaments. They monitor elections. And they represent close to 5 million monitors around the world. Um, it is a now a, an international network of citizen groups that monitor their own government. They monitor government expenditures in the health sector. They monitor using um, uh, sophisticated statistical-based methods for observing elections. And, and they're now beginning to look at ways in which to detect disinformation through the internet, social media, and to expose it and to help respond to it by um, uh, identifying vulnerable populations and trying to counter that campaign. It's important, I think, for these types of groups to have a relationship with the tech community so the tech community can help respond effectively to, to this Challenges. efforts to subvert their, their platforms. Ken, what are you hopeful about? There's been you know, if you, a lot of people in the business have been down, discouraged, frustrated because of, let's call it this democracy recession. I don't think that's the entire story. I know you don't think that's the entire story. What are you hopeful about? 
You know, I you know, my chairman is Madeleine Albright, who always talks about that that we're in the optimism business and that she is an optimist, but an optimist who worries a lot. And I and I, I share that optimism and I also worry a lot. Um, but what what gives I think all of us who are engaged in this effort to support the hopes and aspirations of citizens around the world that believe strongly that a more democratic world is a more peaceful and prosperous place, who believe that sovereignty derives from the people, not from government, um, that we have a responsibility to help each other uh, because what happens for good or for bad um, anywhere in the world, um, unlike that tag famous tagline in advertising, doesn't stay there. And we see this in terms of migration flow, terms of terrorism, in terms of disease, that we have a responsibility. We're all It's an independent and interconnected world. And understanding that and then seeing those people on the ground who are sometimes courageous but are dedicated to these fundamental universal principles and values um, and to see that they spend uh, their lives and livelihoods um, on these fundamental issues, that's, it. that's what gives you hope, and that's what continues to, to, to have me in the optimist camp. I consider me in the optimist camp, too. Ken, thanks a lot. I look forward to working with you a lot going forward uh, in your new incarnations. So thank you, Ken, thank very, you, Dan. very much. Thank you, Thank you for including me. Thank you.